Welcome to an in-focus edition of On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I've been increasingly curious about student success across higher education, how it has changed, and what institutions are doing to engage and retain a new generation of learner. I'd like to thank the folks at NAC for bringing this conversation together. I encourage you to go to joinnac.com where you can capitalize on your NACs and make the most of your skills by helping your peers. Now, on to the episode. So I don't know if it's just something in the air, but higher ed, it just keeps sort of pinging my own personal meter. And I want to continue to have conversations about it because maybe it's I'm a dad and I think about sort of what's that next step going to look like uh, in my world um, as a parent, but also because I, I think about the transition to college or from college to career and the steps that we need to have in place to support today's student um, and really early career. And so I want to continue that conversation. And I'm excited, especially after what we just talked about sort of off air, but Paige Keller, she's the head of academic relations at NAC. She's got this incredible background uh, for years at the College of Charleston, director of peer education and student support programs, adjunct faculty, uh, and advisor down to admissions and financial assistance and scholarship. Paige, you've you've touched so much uh, when it comes to student success. Let's just sort of broadly start with why was this area of interest to you when you were thinking about a career and specifically higher education? Because I do think it's an interesting track that you've been on mm-hmm. um, and one that doesn't get a lot of glory, I guess, or fanfare and should, because to me, it can be the heartbeat of a thriving institution of higher education. Yeah, I agree with that. And I was very fortunate to work at a school that that respected and supported those of us who were in the trenches at the College of Charleston. But what led me into higher ed, uh, it was probably because I've been a lifelong lover of school. I've always been a, I've always enjoyed being a student. I've always enjoyed working with students. I went to college at a it was a small women's college in South Carolina. And I was very involved. I uh, chose it, I think, because my visits to campus gave me gave me the sense that everyone on campus wanted to be involved. So I jumped into everything. I worked in admissions. I was a tour guide. I was on the honor board all four years, chair of the honor board my senior year. But what what I think really helped inform a lot of the work that I've done over the years was my work as a tutor. And uh, yeah, it's a bit of a funny story because I was I was a chemistry major. And as you can imagine, at a small women's college, that's a pretty small department. We had (laughs) two of the same faculty all four years. And I think one or two years we had a third who was um, a visiting professor, I believe. But my the end of my sophomore year, my uh, my advisor, who was also the department chair, came up to me and said, Paige, our departmental chemistry tutor, she's graduating. Would you please step into the role for your junior year and hopefully your senior year too? And being the joiner I was, I said, sure, what do I do? <laughs> and uh, and she said, okay, so when you return for the fall, go to the business affairs office, fill out all the paperwork we need you to fill out, and then tell us what time you want to hold the group tutoring sessions. So I did that and I started tutoring. And I tutored for two years. And as much as I loved my school and loved the department, I received no training. There was absolutely no training. Um, and I suppose there was a level of supervision because I was uh, I was I was in the department all the time and 
was able to talk with the with the professors. But yeah, I just jumped right in and did it. And so I love that because it really paints a picture as to really what you're doing now, obviously with NAC. But look, tell me, paint paint a picture for me because to me, tutoring used to historically sort of be this nice to have backstop, um, you know, a way to support sort of that one area that someone might be struggling in. But there was this notion that a tutor was someone you didn't really know. You know, it was sort of this it was a name, but you didn't really know who they were. Almost, It almost kind of reminds me when you're a kid and you go to the movie theater and you go, oh my gosh, there's my principal. Like they're a human. Yeah. <laughs> and you're yeah. just amazed in elementary school that these people go to dinner, they have families. <laughs> and I think that <laughs> people, so they don't, they haven't had an experience where tutoring can be from up here, from those that understand sort of the context of the current situation that they're learning in and all these other elements. Can you talk a little bit about the arc of when you were a tutor and how that brand, if we use that sort of term loosely, has changed over time into sort of where we are now based on the needs that students have currently? Oh, yeah, it's definitely changed so much. I think I, I feel like I should add that I was a secondary education minor. So I I knew the pedagogy. I understood. I understood how to teach. And I also going to a small school, I was able to develop those relationships. And that that did, as I mentioned, it helped to inform the work that I've done over the years working in the Center for Excellence in Peer Education at the College of Charleston. Uh, developing these peer educators to become paraprofessional peer helping peer support leaders on our campus. And uh, the college was about 10,000 undergraduates. And at any given time, we would have, by the time I left, we could have upwards of 600 peer educators on campus performing services in the Center for Student Learning as peer tutors or supplemental instruction leaders or peer academic coaches. We also had peer academic coaches working with, uh, with working with students who had been admitted provisionally who were considered at risk in a sense. Uh, we had peer facilitators in the first year experience program. So we just, we had a, a super robust program at the college. And you ask how, how has peer education changed? How has peer tutoring changed? You're absolutely right. Years and years ago, and peer tutoring now, of course, has been around forever and ever for hundreds of years um, to a degree. But it was not until the 1970s, after the very first learning center was opened in California on a college campus, that uh, that we started seeing more and more of these peer education programs expanding and growing into what we see today as an integral part of every college and university campus. And I definitely view peer education, and I'll, I guess I will focus a little more on peer tutoring, but I definitely peer, uh, I view peer tutoring as more, as you said, as more than just that subject matter help where the where it's this just person who knows chemistry or knows math or knows yeah, the SME, right? The subject matter expert. Right. And they are subject matter experts as peers. Yeah. They're not, they're not full-on experts like professors, but it's more than just being a subject matter expert. We have to train our peer tutors to work with the whole student, to be able to pick up on any at-risk behaviors or, or any, any concerning issues that, that should be reported up the chain to a supervisor. It's, it's much more 
I was thinking about this the other day. You know, we think about in in K-12, we think about sort of this whole child concept. Mm-hmm. I, I think finally higher ed is starting to understand it's really this whole adult concept, you mm-hmm. know, that it it's not just about, to your point, a, let's say a degree program where we're going to check this box, we're going to matriculate down to this. It, it really is much more three-dimensional than that. And our peer tutoring and peer education can play a vital role, not just some like stopgap, but re- mm-hmm. especially post-COVID. Um, can you talk a little bit about just the shift in need from students? Because, you know, they come from a world where everything's personalized in their social lives, right? It's a world of playlists and Spotify and online banking and sort of at your fingertip. Uh, it feels like we can accomplish the same thing in a learning ecosystem Mm-hmm. And in a way that feels much more relational than it has in the past. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. I think that um, when when we are when we're training peer tutors, we we want them to understand you know student development theory, and we want them to understand the different types of learning styles that a student might have, so that they can better work with them. But peer tutoring definitely has morphed over the years. Um, and particularly, as you mentioned, post-COVID, uh, post-COVID or during COVID <laughs> and <Right>. post-COVID, <laughs> those mental health needs became more visible to us. And um, the opportunity for a student, a 2T, to develop and maintain a relationship with this helper, with this peer helper, can, can mean a lot to both the 2T and the tutor, right? It can mean that they, it helps them maybe to find their place on campus. They have someone to to be open with in a way that they can't be open with a professional tutor or a professor or a staff member. Is is it it too far afield to say, Paige, that that can, what you're talking about, can actually impact on the university side retention? Because to me, if I feel connected and maybe more importantly engaged, well, then I'm not even thinking about sort of this as a, almost like a month to month or a academic year to academic year that I may or may not remain with that university. It just feels like it's something that keeps me connected and allows me not just connected sort of in a social way, right? Like, you know, your students that are going to parties all the time, but it's yeah. about the growth and development of me as an individual and a budding sort of career professional. Exactly. We want these students, and we know, we do know that peer tutoring and all all sorts of peer education impact retention and persistence to graduation. And it's not just for the student receiving the help. These are also, these peer education positions also impact the students serving in the role. And we see that it helps to retain them and persist, help them persist to graduation. I, I, I laugh. I think about this story a lot, and I guess I need to go back a little bit. But there are a lot of people who, when they hear or when they have heard about the work I've done for so many years with peer educators, 
they'll say, well, when I was in school, you know, back in my day, whatever that old Saturday <laughs> Night Live clip was, back in my day, we didn't need peer mentors. We didn't oh, need yeah. peer tutors. And we do want our peer tutors to also act as peer mentors. And we train them in that way. And we should, they all should be trained in that way. But I remember sitting on a plane in this years ago, and this man asked me, what do you do? And, uh, and little <laughs> did I know he was going to try to insult my work. Oh, no. <laughs> and, uh, he, did, he pulled the back in my day. We didn't have, why do kids these days need it? You know what? Kids have needed, students have needed these peer mentors. They've needed these relationships that help them feel connected to the university by relating to that person who's been through the same experience, who's also lived in the residence halls, who's also had the same professors, who might have had that same issue getting an appointment in health services, or, you know, I ran out of meal meal plan points. How do I get more? They they need these relationships. I was actually on a call with uh with someone from Harvard, someone from the tutoring center at Harvard earlier this week. And we were talking about their exceptionally high retention rate and graduation rates. And I said, do people ever ask you, why do you have a tutoring center there? And she said, (laughs) students at Harvard are not exempt from the need for tutoring. In fact, many of these students have had them their whole lives. Their whole lives. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's incredible how people misconstrue what the concept, right, and the actualization of tutoring and the experience of it is. And one area that I think has needed a a bit of a reset or a remodel is the economic model from the university side Mm -hmm. to employ. Because when I've talked to people in this space from the university side, it's that there were some sort of core issues or challenges they had. It was, how do we how do we rationalize the costs against sort of these set blocks of time mm-hmm. and human capital resources and also create something that is inviting that the students, because that was sort of the the double-edged sword. It was like, it was so regimented in a way that felt, I think, distancing to a student who maybe had a need that in fact, they didn't then participate. And then the university is saying, well, we're wasting this money and these resources. So it feels like that's been something that we've had to to navigate or circumvent against to mm-hmm. create something that's personalized that supports an equitable experience across the university mm-hmm. and student body. Am I am I is that is that fair to say that those have been some challenges? This conversation has been supported by our friends at NAC. Go to joinnac.com to capitalize on your NACs. Now, back to the show. There have been some challenges, and there are still some challenges to that on university campuses. But uh, and let tell me if I'm going in the wrong direction here. But I I think there are many schools who have embraced the development of these peer education programs because they they're they're financially a good decision for them. And I'll and I'll give you an example uh, at my previous institution in the tutoring center, which I worked alongside the tutoring center. Uh, we, uh, the Center for Excellence in Peer Education was within the division of what we call the academic experience. And the tutoring center, the Center for Student Learning was also in there. And so, gosh, it must have been 12, 10 or 12 years ago. And the director, she was 
Uh, she was then in a different role. And she, they kept seeing these students coming into the Center for Student Learning who they were going to tutoring and they were coming in for specific study skills help. And, and they were just overwhelmed with the number of students who were coming in and asking for professional help. We want to meet with a professional. We need to, I, I need help studying for philosophy. I need help studying for decision science, whatever, whatever the courses were. And she said that she, it took some time, but what she eventually discovered is that these students needed help with time and task management. That's what they needed help with. It wasn't the subject matter. It might've been a little bit the subject matter, but it was let's get you organized and let's 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 figure this out. So she compared and she if she were to hear me right now she might say no let me let me help explain this better but this is my <laughs> this is my memory of it. She compared hiring another full-time employee creating another position full-time um benefits for for another position in the department versus hiring 3 hiring and training 3 peer academic coaches to work 10 to 15 hours a week, which if those peer academic coaches work 10 to 15 hours a week, that's more than what one full-time employee would be able to work when you take into consideration meetings and, and note time and, uh, and, and just, and random walk-ins. So they, she ended up hiring these three peer academic coaches at a significantly lower cost than had they created a brand new full-time professional position. So it was an economically, it was economically a good decision for their department. And, and that program, of course, has grown and another peer academic coaching program exploded on campus where they have over 20 students in that program. So I think that while some schools may may see the development of these programs as uh, not cost effective, I disagree. I think that they absolutely are. And I also think, and this is jumping into a, a totally different conversation, I think with the great resignation, we are still seeing in higher education. I'm a product of that, apparently, um, <laughs> although I wasn't <laughs> wasn't necessarily looking to leave. This is just an opportunity to, I didn't want to pass up. Um, but with the great resignation, uh, people are staff, they're severely understaffed in many learning centers across the nation and peer educators could be the answer to that problem. And I think a lot of schools are are going in that route. No, it's a fair point. And, and one thing I wanted to, to ask was sometimes I think it can be revelatory when we think, when we look at the questions that are being asked by uh, the consumer, the vendor, the provider, because if, if we're starting to ask different or better or more refined questions, it implies that we have a different knowledge base mm -hmm. that might then impact the services that we are receiving. Mm -hmm. And so on both sides of it, are we finding just in your experience, I mean, not that you represent the entire industry, right? I mean, we can put that on you, Paige. You're very smart and accomplished. <laughs> sure, <woman>. let's do but, it. <laughs> but are we finding sort of in general or small sample size that we're getting on one hand, universities that are starting to ask different questions, whether it's about sort of the economics of tutoring and peer tutoring and peer education, and also from the student side of it, are they starting to ask and be a little bit more, uh, maybe serving more as their own personal advocate? Because, you know, when I, if I'm a student, I understand sort of what's there for me, and it really uh -huh. does kind of fit me and gives me the opportunity to learn um, on my own time and these sorts of things. That might empower me to actually engage even more than I might have otherwise. And on the other hand, if I'm asking good questions from the university perspective, maybe mm -hmm. that starts to show or shed some light on 
we are starting to ask questions because we can't just do what we've always done. And if that's the case, maybe we are open to new and better ways because ultimately it will help with retention, right? Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I love that you said that because I have, you could ask uh, some of my colleagues, I've said that over the past few days, we really need to have conversations about stepping outside of your comfort zone. And I'm talking about talking about the staff and administrators on college campuses, step outside of your comfort zone. Just because what you've always done has consistently worked doesn't necessarily mean it's the very best way things should be done. And you really need to be a little more introspective and, and, um, and, and consider that there might be other possibilities out there. Um, I'm not, what What were you asking me? <laughs> yeah, just the questions. Are we seeing questions? So based on that, so we're on the same, you and I are on the same page yes. or the same sheet of music. Are we finding that there are different questions that are informing kind of this path? I mean, are like if you're engaging with someone from Harvard, right? And you're talking about that. Are you even finding that their questions of you or the discussions have a different flavor to them, which to you would then indicate there is a shift? Right. It's sort of like looking at markets and going, you know, I think that <laughs> we might be going into virtual reality more. And why? Because everybody's talking about these digital landscapes or whatever it is. Right. And yes, people are asking more questions, asking different questions. Some of them are. So I'll I'll give a couple of examples. And I, at this point, from this point forward, we will always have pre-COVID and, and, and during COVID and post-COVID. And we had to start asking different questions in March 2020, right? That we had to shift our methods of delivery immediately. And now that we are semi back to normal, I would I won't say that we're ever truly back to normal, but now that we're sort of back to normal, a lot of universities are asking the question, what do we do about these online services that we're still subscribing to, that we are still, that some of our students still want, but then we have all of these other students who very much want to be in person. And I and I definitely think that that what we're what what's happening is that a lot of schools are a lot of schools now that we're mask free now that there's not a 6 foot distance between us we don't have these barriers and uh a lot of people are getting rid of the online virtual settings entirely because we don't we just don't want to do that anymore we don't need to do it pre covid students didn't want to do it we we're going back to normal now that that's what we should be saying. I'm not sure that we should assume that our students want to go back to the exact same methods of delivery that we had pre-COVID. And I'm not just talking about tutoring services, I'm talking about classes and um and counseling services. And I could I could probably yeah, you're exactly this. right. And and by the way, right. the extension to that, which it does feel you don't have to say it, I'll say it, it does feel a little bit like fool's gold for universities to think, oh, we'll just go back. Because mm -hmm. these young people are going to be walking into professional settings that are kind of like what it was like during COVID. Yeah. I can't think of the last professional that I've interviewed or even interfaced in my own local community that doesn't have some connection to remote work, even managing teams across the world. I mean, it's, you know, exactly. even if they're local. And so I think you've really had hit on an important point, which is this is kind of the way it is to, I mean, as far as we can see and the horizon line keeps sort of moving, 
Mm-hmm. But it, I'd rather put my chips on the table in a direction that says, we kind of need to understand this in real time, my time, hybrid, remote, like all of it. It's sort of, mm-hmm. it's all fair game. I think what students discovered during 2020 and 2021 was that they did have different, they did have different needs and they, and they discovered different interests and, um, and different ways of learning that worked better for them. I, you mentioned earlier that you are a parent and that you have children. So I assume they're not college age yet. Is that what you No, they're there? I call them. They're in the opinion age. They're 10 and eight. <laughs> Well, mine's still in the opinion age and she's 21 and a senior in college. <laughs> You're telling me this continues. <laughs> it does. Uh, and I I have, while I, she went to, she goes to the school where I worked. <laughs> and, uh, and so I try, I made every effort not to talk about her while I was there, but I'll talk about her now because I'm there no you longer. Go. Let, it, let it rip, Paige. <laughs> uh, it's been interesting because I was able to college has been my life. I've said that. I have been in higher ed her entire life and even before. And I have had to endure my child's college experience during the pandemic. She was a freshman in spring 2020 and had to move out of the residence hall. And I just, I was in tears for so long because I worked in the first year experience for so long and even my own child couldn't enjoy her first year experience. And, um, and then, you know, sophomore year, most everything was online. And she came to me last year before she registered. And she said, you know, I'm going to register for a lot of online classes because I think I prefer that. She said, there are certain classes I do enjoy face-to-face, but some of them, I kind of I kind of just enjoy the opportunity to, to work from home and go to class from home. And um, so I think these students have, they've shifted and they've they evolved. Have, they have they've they've evolved and in many cases they've snapped back which is a term i've been using with a group from the college that i've been working on a research study exploring first year responses to the pandemic at first year responses to the first year as it relates to the pandemic i should say um and what we've discovered is these students they they snap back, they ease into new situations much, much better than the rest of us do. Those of us in staff and administration in fall 2021 were, you know, we're still talking about um, <laughs> talking about COVID and masks and we're concerned for our students, we're concerned for ourselves. And the students were like, yeah, we're not even really thinking about it anymore. This is just life now. And it's life, you're right. <laughs> And, and we, I think that age has made us uh, a little more cynical and a little more concerned than our, than our younger counterparts, but. I feel you as a parent, my, my youngest was entering kindergarten. So, you know, she entered kindergarten with masks and shields and everything else. And it was just Mm -hmm. heartbreaking to see these little kids that were in such a, so during such a social age, right. And then sort of, to your point, a freshman in college, it's that first Mm -hmm. year experience and. It's just a very different experience. Yeah. But did your child who was going into kindergarten, was she, she or he, I'm sorry. She, they, yeah, yeah. She, she, yeah. Uh, was she as concerned about all of those barriers and protective measures as you were? No, no. not at all. No, they don't care. They, don't yeah, care. It's the, they just, it's their life. That's kind of what they know. 
And, uh, and I guess it's all about just our level of uncomfortability with change as adults. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's, and I don't, I don't know if we want to bring this back around to knack at any point, but I would have, I wouldn't have left my wonderful job and my amazing colleagues if it weren't moving to a company like this that offers such a robust product. It, it's, for peer tutors, students helping students on a college campus, which is my heart. Uh, but I, I every time I think about our product or any product similar to it, or maybe even just shifting what you've always done to to try something new, I I'm just I'm reminded how 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 happy I am that products like NAC do exist for for colleges and universities to to offer different options to their students. I don't know if you, you, I imagine that you keep up with the Chronicle of Higher Ed like I do. And and I've even just within the past couple of weeks, there've been a few articles relating back to that, um, to that concept that students want choices. Students want options for the classroom, for student support services, for academic support services. They want to be able to choose. Because we live in a streaming world, don't we? Yeah, they were able to choose during COVID and they were able to choose post-COVID and they want to continue post-post-COVID. Absolutely. I mean, anybody who gets the opportunity to fly first class once in their life says, I don't know if I could go back to COVID. You know, it's just, it's like anything. You have something and you go, this is better, different. I have choice. I can mm-hmm. sort of stretch out <laughs> metaphorically and sort of become myself. And and that I think is what sort of brings it all full circle is that in your career working in higher education, that to be able to find something and a, a group of people like Knack that understand that life in higher ed can be a little bit different and different can be great. And it can yeah. be great on all ends because everybody is supported in an ecosystem. And I think that that sh- speaks to the sensibility of the folks that you collaborate with and what the offering is to support peers on both sides of the tutoring and, and sort of learning spectrum. Um, I want to make sure that people can get connected with NAC and potentially you in that. I know you're incredibly busy, uh, Paige, but folks can go to joinnac.com to learn more about why Paige Keller left the College of Charleston for something <laughs> super cool uh, and innovative and really sort of, I think, real-time um in motion with that horizon line that continues to be to be moved um, and hopefully in better uh, and more productive directions. Uh, Paige, what a pleasure to spend some time with you. Uh, really enjoy it. And uh, we will uh, make sure that people get to know you and joinnack.com a little bit more. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.